Hello and welcome to episode 21 of Celluloid Junkies. I am Luke Kane and I am here with my co-host Damien Heath. Hello. How are you? I'm good. How are you? Oh, you know. Welcome back to season three. I know. Did you enjoy the break? I loved the break. How about you? (laughs) (laughs) Yes, me too. But I'm glad to be back. Yeah, me too. And for a good movie, this month we're profiling Bob Clark's 1974 horror thriller Black Christmas. Remember those idyllic scenes out of your childhood? Crisp winter nights, sleigh bells, crackling yule logs? Remember those? Remember them well. After Black Christmas, they'll never be the same again. Black Christmas. If this movie doesn't make your skin crawl, it's on too tight. Rated R. March 18th, 1950. 13-year-old Missourian Janet Chrisman is babysitting a neighbourhood boy when a stranger breaks into the house. She is found later that night lying in a pool of blood, having been raped, bludgeoned and strangled. Nobody is charged with her murder. News of her violent death spreads through the community. Over the years it has changed, embellished, added to, and from it springs an urban legend. The legend of a babysitter and a maniac whose calls are coming from inside the house. 23 years later in Canada, 1973, Roy Moore, a budding writer, pens his first screenplay after reading about a series of murders in Montreal. Combining the real-life crimes and the urban legend, the first incarnation of what becomes Black Christmas is born. He sends it to several agents and studios before it falls into the hands of rising filmmaker Bob Clarke. Clark has recently established himself with a low-budget horror comedy Children Shouldn't Play With Dead Things. He makes a number of changes to Moore's screenplay, fleshing out his female protagonists and setting the film over the Christmas holidays. Thanks to Canada's tax shelter system, Clark is able to raise the $620,000 budget. Olivia Hussey accepts the lead role, having established herself five years earlier in the film adaptation of Romeo and Juliet. With her on board... Other promising young actors join the cast, including Andrea Martin and Marco Kidder. The production lasts 40 days over the winter of 73 and 74, largely around the University of Toronto campus. The atmosphere on set is relaxed and friendly, thanks largely to Bob Clark's meticulous preparation. He has members of the crew play minor roles to cut costs. The production hits a snag when Edmund O'Brien, cast as Lieutenant Fuller, arrives in Canada battling the early stages of Alzheimer's disease. Clark quickly ascertains the veteran actor will not be well enough to perform the outdoor night scenes in the chilly Toronto weather. John Saxon, who'd previously been sent the script but lost out to O'Brien, is called in as a last-minute replacement. The film is released to middling reviews but enjoys a healthy box office return in Canada. Warner picks up the film for wide distribution. They ask Clark to change the ambiguous ending to establish that Pete, Jess's boyfriend, is the killer. He refuses. Warner's changes the name to Silent Night, Evil Night, and the film flounders in the US. Critics label it misogynistic, and its Christmas-themed setting in poor taste. It does not get a home video release for years and fades into obscurity, where it languishes unnoticed for almost 30 years. Its resurgence owes a debt to film enthusiasts like Daniel Duffin and writers like Paul Korup. 
and it soon re-enters the public consciousness. Today, Black Christmas is regarded as a genre classic and one of the most influential horror films of the last 50 years. So Damien, tell me about you and Black Christmas. I think it's difficult, as we'll find out during this show, to look at Black Christmas without talking about its role in the development of the slasher movie, and particularly in relation to Halloween, the John Carpenter film that came four years later. Personally, I think I've always had a little bit of trouble with Halloween, and that's why I've naturally gravitated toward Black Christmas more. And I do love John Carpenter movies. I I think I prefer his 80s output, The Thing, The Fog, They Live. Going back to Halloween, I find that I connect with it a little bit less than I do his other films and a little bit less than Black Christmas. Uh, And I think I find Black Christmas a bit looser and the characters a bit more real and the story a little more taken in stride than Halloween, which I find is sometimes a little bit too serious about itself. And that's a little weird because I also love Friday the 13th later on. So, uh, But I, I can understand that Friday the 13th has little in the way of artistic value compared to something like Halloween. That's not to say that I don't think Halloween's great, because I really think it is, but I've always preferred Black Christmas, and I'm really happy that we're doing it right now. I think it's a really good film to do in between the Halloween and Christmas period, and it's a much-loved film, so hopefully we do it justice. I probably first saw it about 15 years ago, so I guess if it, if it resurfaced then... And it was just something you sought out or came across? I, I think I had read at the time that it was the first slasher, even before Halloween. Right. I think that's what I had read. And so, naturally, you know, as a huge fan of slasher movies, I had to see it. I saw the film with you hmm. for the first time, and I was really haunted by it. I guess I was struck not only by the by the presentation of the killer, who was just so mad, disembodied and creepy, but also by the maturity of the storytelling, the maturity of the girls, and, and also how visually sophisticated the film is. I think for me, Halloween is a more memorable, a more vivid film than Black Christmas, ultimately. Probably rate Halloween a touch higher than Black Christmas, but I think Black Christmas is, in terms of character... And in terms of narrative sophistication, a better film. I think a lot of that stuff was probably lost on me early on and has only dawned on me in the last five years or so. A lot of those characterizations and everything. And certainly before that, I found this to be a really fun movie. And I do tend to enjoy Christmas-themed horror movies. I think I had a pretty good childhood and Christmas was always a pretty important part of the year. And tying that into, I've always had such an interest in horror movies that just putting those two things together is like probably the ultimate. It's it's <laughs> great. It's great fun to see people killed at Christmas time, to see this, you know, festive, cheery, family-oriented time of the year turned upside down. So I really like that. And also it excites me every time you say that you love a slasher because typically slashers are not taken seriously and with good reason you know there's a lot of really really poor slasher films out there and i watch a lot of junk horror movies all the time and i'm ready readily willing to admit that but i was born in 1982 i was born you know right in the middle of when this slasher period was really during its golden age and so when i was old enough to start watching these films they had matured to a point where i guess the history of that period 
could be seen by people that were watching it at that point. So in the in the mid nineties, the late nineties, people could understand where this film was going you know the period that had happened yeah and the importance of that period so i think i was lucky in that respect that i didn't live through it even though the you know i guess uh, part of me wishes i had lived through it and been <laughs> able to go to the cinema and to the drive-in and see all of these movies i guess the nice thing is that you had the entire catalogue the entire phase had played itself out so you could see its inception you could yeah. see it's kind of how it fizzled out and all of the things in between that's right and i think there's something really special about 80s horror if you were to talk about 70s horror, which is what Black Christmas is, um, you've also got Last House on the Left and you've got Jaws and you've got The Hills Have Eyes and so many remarkable genre-defining movies. And then in the 80s, the films just took themselves far less seriously than they did in the 70s. And the films that took themselves seriously generally weren't as successful. So you've got all of these really great movies in the 80s that mix all of that seriousness of the 70s with some kind of i don't want to say comedy there there are elements of comedy but with a tongue-in-cheek kind of nature and that's where you get things like poltergeist and gremlins and you know return of the living dead and reanimator and films like that so i really love that period of cinema and horror cinema probably more than any other period and I understand the importance of something like Black Christmas in getting to that point. And you can see the influence of Black Christmas in those later movies, even if they were completely different. Yeah, well, this is one of the questions that I think we'll discuss. Certainly, talking about Black Christmas is a chance to go into the slasher genre, to discuss it in terms of gender and sexual politics. And I mean, there is so much film theory and criticism that is sort of bunched in with these sorts of films. And we are going to be kind of getting into a bit of that. But it is interesting to consider whether or not Black Christmas is actually a slasher film. There are two schools of thought on this. Bob Clark himself calls it a thriller more than a horror movie, and I think a case can be made for that because, specifically, we don't get much slashing in this slasher film. That's true, and it really depends on your definition of a slasher film. The history of that subgenre is very long, it's very varied, it's open to interpretation, and it's a very subjective thing. You know, everybody is going to have a different definition of whether this film or that film or that film is part of the slasher genre. Some critics use the term to depict any horror film involving murder so you're 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 going right back to i guess to the start of time but you know not the monster films of universal and the, the hammer films but the italian giallo films and uh, certainly hitchcock's psycho and peeping tom but i think the more commonly accepted definition is a horror film wherein a psychopath or a sociopath stalks and murders a group of people usually with a sharp object and I think that's a pretty clear and concise and relevant definition of the slasher. Yeah, I think you do have to keep it as broad as that because there have been so many iterations of this genre from its early beginnings. You know, if we look at Halloween, Peeping Tom, Psycho, but then what we got in the 80s was just so many variations on this theme. It's interesting, uh, I was watching a slasher little slasher documentary last night and they said that the most successful slasher films were the ones that stayed true to the basic formula and that any slasher film that went too far out on either side was generally not successful Mm. and they pointed to the friday the 13th as examples so you put jason in space or you put him in manhattan and you're kind of moving a little too far away from the general thing and those films weren't successful the best friday the 13th were camp crystal lake bunch of teenagers and Jasons in the woods stalking them. And they had that formula that at that time, and Black Christmas was not a part of that time, but 
at the time that Friday the 13th started and Sean Cunningham and Wes Craven and all of those kinds of filmmakers, they realised this formula can be repeated ad nauseum and continue to make money. And it did. I mean, if you look at the box office back then of the Friday the 13th movies, it was, and the Nightmare on Elm Street movies, it was immense for the amount of money that was being spent on these movies. It was hugely profitable. Nowhere near the figures that you see these days in the box office, although I would say ticket sales were probably on par, if not higher. So, you know, getting back to Black Christmas, the reason that I struggle personally to think of it as a slasher film is that it's more concerned with psychological terror. And most slasher films aren't really concerned with that. You know, they're concerned with visceral terror, the actual threat of the blade penetrating the flesh. Whereas Black Christmas, so much of it is about these phone calls and the girls reacting to them and there being something not right in this town, there being girls going missing and the interplay between the women. It just doesn't fit in my head, it doesn't square with what I understand to be your traditional slasher movie. I know that it has a lot of the visual techniques that were employed in Halloween and I know that it has the general idea of there being girls and there being a killer. If you take all of that out of it, I don't see many similarities between this and general slasher films. I mean, Halloween is essentially a much more stylized version of Black Christmas. It's set at a holiday. It's a killer that's just going around stalking teenage girls and in the end the killer survives. It's a much more stylized version of Black Christmas. If you take out from Black Christmas the majority of the characterization of the girls and the humanity that they're given, uh, the independence that they're given, and if you take out the police procedural aspect of Black Christmas, which is such a driving part of the story, and if you take out the sub-stories about the little girl that's found dead and about the rape, and, you know, this is just setting the tone of this community. If you take all of that out, then what you're left with, essentially, is Halloween, which Mm. is a straightforward stalk-and-kill slasher movie done in a brilliant way with amazing visuals, and you do have uh, the point of view camera shot at the start of Halloween. So some fantastic stuff in there. I'm sure it sounds like I'm understating the importance of Halloween here, but there is there is some fantastic stuff in that movie. But Black Christmas is not just that. It is a lot more. I mean, one of the things that I think makes this film really work is the fact that in a lot of slasher films, not Halloween, but definitely, you know, the Friday the 13th movies, the Nightmare movies. People start dying, and yet the characters continue acting as though there's nothing wrong. But in Black Christmas, one girl goes missing. We're not even sure that she's dead, or we are as an audience, but the the characters in this movie are not sure that she's dead. And yet the whole world kind of stops to look for this girl, to be concerned for her, her father comes down. I mean, it is. It's like watching a really good police procedural as well. It's real because when people do go missing, especially young women in a community, it is taken seriously and people do look for them. Whereas, you know, so often in these teenage slasher films, someone goes missing and no one really cares. No, that's right. They get, you know, they get hacked up and nobody cares. And that's it. We move on. That's it. I mean, we already have started, but why don't we talk a little bit about the origins of the slasher film? Arguably, it began with Hitchcock's Psycho, which is not a slasher film, but it does have one immensely influential impacting scene which is the shower scene which is a slasher scene and you know this is an obvious precursor to this subgenre the shower scene is echoed so much in the opening scene of halloween i think it's worth pointing out and you mentioned about peeping tom but if black christmas lives somewhat in the shadow of halloween then the same can be said of michael powell's peeping tom for psycho and they were both released in the same year 
But what's revolutionary about the shower scene in Psycho is that it turned the business of murder into a visceral experience, which is something that hadn't really been done with on-screen murder prior to Psycho. And what I mean by that is that the audience had a physical response to the scene. You know, it acts on your heart rate, on your sweat glands, on our central nervous system. Hitchcock told Truffaut that it was an instance where the audience was aroused by pure cinema. There's nothing cerebral about it. Our response to the scene is primal. It's largely unconscious. We're reacting to the idea of flesh tearing, of screaming, of the physical violence, of invasion of the body. Any slasher film worth its salt is interested primarily in stimulating those same physical responses. And you can pretty much judge the effectiveness of a slasher film by how well it plays on our physical responses. And I think that one thing that that scene in Psycho does that slasher films then echoed for the next couple of decades was to make the audience complicit in the action. You know, you you are so often seen because of the use of point of view shot, essentially holding a knife and bringing that down onto somebody's body. Mm. So people got this, I don't know if it would be some kind of cathartic experience watching a slasher film. Yeah, well, we're definitely going to get into that, I think, particularly when we discuss gender and the fact that slasher films are predominantly loved and seen by young male audiences. You can't really talk about slasher films without bringing up Carol J. Clover's um, seminal essay. What's it called? His Body Herself. Uh, Her Body body himself. Himself. Sorry. This was an essay that took slasher films seriously from a theoretical standpoint, and they never had been before. Slasher films were pretty much disregarded by film critics, mostly because they were considered like a low form of horror. They have been likened to pornography, with the depictions of murder substituting for the sex scenes. This article, I mean, this article came out after the golden age of slasher films, so well after Black Christmas. And look, on either side of those slashing slash sex scenes we have character establishing scenes which are in most cases pretty poor and poorly constructed just like porno films both genres are also interested almost exclusively in eliciting a bodily response from the audience which we've talked about you know slasher films have generally been where fans of the horror genre start out before graduating into horror films that are considered more sophisticated more intelligent more adult like rosemary's baby or the exorcist or to name a recent example hereditary Usually we begin with, I mean, I know you and I are probably, as teenagers, loved, I know what you did last summer, and Urban Legend and Scream. You know, that was our first real foray into, oh my god, I love horror. I think one thing we didn't do was give up on the slasher film. (laughs) There's uh, certain tropes that are often attributed to slasher films, from such story-defining things as the indestructible or implacable killer, to the sexually active or even sexually promiscuous teen victims right down to the mini-tropes like the asshole boyfriend running up the stairs instead of out of the front door, animal-initiated jump scares, and useless authority figures, which I know is another thing that Carol Clover talks about in her essay. Black Christmas didn't have this proven history to draw upon when it was shot, but it certainly helped establish many of those tropes. Billy, who we will discuss in depth a bit later, is a largely unseen figure who picks off his victims one by one when opportunity arises. He's got some kind of demented history, as demonstrated through his phone calls to the girls, which include multi-personality vocalisations that seem to be of conversations between his childhood self and his mother. The relationship between mother and son would become a defining motif in the slasher, most successfully, I think, used in the Friday 13th series, which even saw the mother as the revenge killer in its first entry. 
This film proceeds with some creative deaths, including our special guest this month, Lynn Griffin, ending up under a plastic bag in a very uncomfortable-to-watch extended take, until we're left with the final girl. And this trope is almost the holiest of slasher film tropes. I mean, each film needs to end with a final girl. As you said, bring up Carol Clover, that, was, that term was coined by her in Her Body Himself, and I believe that was written in 1987 and then published in a 1992 book, which you can still buy, called Men, Women and Chainsaws. And the final girl has been used in almost everything since. It's become one of the most enduring tropes in all of cinema, not just slasher cinema. But early examples include Jess in this film, Sally Hardesty in The Texas Chainsaw Massacre, and Mari Collingwood in Last House on the Left, although this last one is a rape-revenge horror film rather than a slasher film. Even better examples include Laurie Strode in Halloween, Nancy Thompson in A Nightmare on Elm Street, and Sidney Prescott in Scream. And the reason that these are better examples is because they came during the age of the slasher sequel, which gave these heroines multiple opportunities to survive imminent death rather than just one. Black Christmas benefits from being an early slasher in so many ways. It's not bound by all of these conventions, so it's it's making it up as it goes along. And that allows for some genre-bending characterizations, again, which we'll talk about later, but not least of which are Jess and her unwanted pregnancy, and the unapologetic nature of the girls who are here to have some fun with the house mother who's just one of them. Getting back just quickly to Halloween, this film is definitely a much more finely tuned examination of a lot of these tropes, and that's why you're left with someone like Laurie Strode, who is far more memorable than Jess. But that's also because she's been in so many more films since then. But Halloween also established new conventions. It's a far more perfect demonstration of what we now know as the slasher film subgenre than Black Christmas is, and the seriousness with which it takes itself is very different than the future films of for instance, Jason Voorhees and Freddy Krueger, who, more so than Michael Myers, developed the idea of the anti-hero as the star of these movies. Which, Black Christmas, it didn't have an anti-hero. And I think that's largely because Freddy and Jason and Michael Myers had such visual iconography. You know, they had the mask and, and the suit, and they became so memorably fixed in our minds, whereas Billy is quite disembodied through the film. And he's also, rather than, like, having one very clear characterization, he almost seems to have seven or eight that are all in conflict and, and kind of all symbiotic, and it's very, very strange. This could be uh, a really good study in schizophrenia. The interesting thing about Black Christmas, and you've raised it there, particularly when you're talking about Jess being somewhat of a problematic final girl, you know, she doesn't quite fit the criteria. Part of the character arc of the final girl is... In a typical slasher, part of that character arc is to have her almost coming of age, have her realise herself. And I think Jess is very sure of herself from the start of this movie. And I mean, to say something less interesting than that, she's not virginal. She's not innocent. She is the one that is most concerned about or does something about the obscene phone calls. So in that sense, she is does have the kind of suspicious investigative mind that the final girl has, whereas all the other girls generally don't have that, aren't concerned, don't notice that danger is around them. One thing that slasher films do, and certainly Black Christmas does this, is it concerns itself with gender and with sexual attitudes. Carol Clover writes that slasher films present us in startlingly direct terms with a world in which male and female are at desperate odds, but in which at the same time masculinity and femininity are more states of mind than body. 
We're going to get into that second part of that sentence a bit later, but I think it's really interesting to simplify the slasher film into male and females at odds or at war. Black Christmas does this most powerfully in that first obscene phone caller scene because what we get is the horrifying, like nonsensical, incomprehensible words that Billy is saying to them over the phone while Bob Clark's camera kind of glides from one girl's face to another and we get a sense of not only of victimhood but we get almost like this holograph of different female reactions to male aggression. Someone like Claire who just looks sober and frightened we get someone like jess who looks slightly bewildered and then we get barb who's got this kind of defensive mocking bravado kind of reaction to them and they're all valid female responses to male aggression if you look at black christmas everything from jess's pregnancy to margot's free-spirited independence they can be interpreted as threats to male ascendancy and consequently triggers for male aggression the film even puts the men who are not the killer And you've just talked about this, like the kind of useless authoritarian figures. But in this case, Claire's father, Pete, Chris, the police force, in frustrated positions of ineptitude. They're helpless to put a stop to the events unfolding around them. Only the women and the killer drive forward the narrative. We're now going to stop and play our interview with Lynn Griffin, who plays Claire in Black Christmas and was generous enough to speak with me. We hope you enjoy it. Hello? Hello? Who is this? Just to get some background on you, I read that you started out as a child model and actor when you were 12. Is that correct? Yes, actually, I was even younger than that. My father was a professional photographer. Uh, actually a high fashion photographer and so when I was like very very young I I modeled for him in um you know knitting catalogs wearing little sweaters and I I think there might be even one that my mother kept that was diapers but I don't know and I did you know what what we call here you know like the department store catalog modeling you know where you model all the little teen wonderful teen outfits and stuff like that so I I did that I mean all all through my early years and then my father passed away when I was 12 13 well my mother at that point had to make a living so she became a talent agent and represented me and I started doing a children's uh, magazine television show at about 15 and I did that for five years and did you get the sort of the acting bug early, would you say? Oh, definitely. One of the very first plays I did was with my mum. She was playing the maid in the play. It was a play called Boeing, Boeing. I played a French inline hostess. So, yes, I would say I was bitten very early. And I, I also, as a child, I did television commercials. I, I did one for Five Roses Flower, Um, which evidently made the children lighter than air. So we were all put in harnesses and flown up in the air. I I thought that was very fun. (laughs) I I was hooked. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, your your work in film and television, though pretty exhaustive, is matched by your theatre credits. I'm wondering what what for you is sort of the most challenging role you've had on stage or the one that you took most pleasure from? 
Well, I've played the nurse in Romeo and Juliet four times <laughs> because I love it so, and and I I keep wanting to revisit it. I mean, I'm a, a great fan of Shakespeare. I love playing Shakespeare. Everything that you need to know is there on the page. So that's my very favorite uh, in terms of repetition. In terms of life-changing, I would say it was a play called The Voice of the Prairie. Well, we played many characters in that, but I played a young girl of 14 who ages through to the age of 40. And my now husband, uh, unbeknownst to me at that time, was cast as the young boy and aged through the play. So... <laughs> Um, so that play uh, certainly changed the course of my life because um, we were supposed to be young lovers and then we were reunited later in our lives in the play. I guess, you know, art can imitate life or life imitates art. Anyway, we've been married now. Well, we've been married for 27 years, but we've been together for 31. That's quite an achievement. Be careful who you act with. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so your your husband, Sean, that's Sean Sullivan. He's actually had a pretty yeah. prestigious career himself. He has, and I bet he'll talk to you someday if you would like to. Oh, I would love that. That would be wonderful. Yeah, he was in Wayne's World and Back to the Future 3, um, The Howling, and we continue to work together. At the moment, we're uh, in rehearsals sort of most years, but it's sort of been on and off. We do a production called A Christmas Carol Comedy, which I direct, a one actor plays Scrooge, and Sean plays everyone else. So we're putting that on uh, uh, this Christmas uh, in Toronto. So, Lynn, your first film role was Black Christmas. Is that right? Yes. I'll say yes, although I think I had done a short film before that, which was called Divertimento, which is a very, very beautiful art film. Oh. Uh, in, in which one of the only times in my entire career I did a nude scene. So hopefully you won't be able to find that. <laughs> I think there'd be a few people that would, would be very happy to find that. <laughs> I'm sure. I'm sure. I mean, I'm, I know it must be around. I mean, it played uh, for a long time as a short with, believe it or not, Fellini's Amarcord. But fortunately, I, I haven't seen it surface in the last... I don't know how many years. <laughs> when we, when I went to see it, I went with my mum. When it came on screen, of course, my mum had to turn to the entire movie audience and say, that's my daughter. <laughs> so, yeah. But Black Christmas, yes. And, and as Art Kindle, who is also in the movie, who plays my boyfriend, likes to, to remind everybody that it was my first screen kiss. I think I read that you said that it was quite chaste, that kiss. It was, and and of course he had to remind me. I didn't remember because I hadn't seen the film in years. And we sometimes do horror conventions together. <laughs> and at one point during this uh, uh, Q and A, he said, "Well, you know, it was Lynn's first screen kiss." And I went, "It was." <laughs> and he went, "Yeah." And I said, "Oh, I guess it wasn't that memorable." <laughs> now, did you audition for that role? Yes, just like a regular. Audition. I think the reason why I got the part was that I told Bob Clark that uh, I was a very good swimmer, so I could hold my breath for a long time, <laughs> and I that's what sealed the deal. Well, that's a pretty important part of playing Claire, I, I, I would say. So although Claire, she doesn't last long, sadly, 
But her presence in that first scene uh, where you get your first, the first obscene phone call, she's so vital in that scene because she takes the call more seriously than anyone else, any of the other girls. So Mm -hmm. she kind of mirrors the audience's feeling because those calls are so hideous. You know, they're just, they're just terrifying. I'm wondering, did you know how chilling the calls would be when you were playing that scene? No. And I will tell you that, that Bob Clark had said to us, well, you know, it's a bit blue. It's a bit, you know, it'll be a bit filthy. We don't know exactly what it'll be yet, but it'll be a bit blue. So I'm thinking it's saying, I'm going to come over and pull your hair and rip your dress off or something. Not to, you know, for me at that age, that was fairly terrifying. Um, and of course, you know that both between Nick Mancuso and Bob Clark, they are the voices on the telephone call. So I think Bob had a sneaking suspicion of what he was likely to record for that phone call. It was a surprise to me when I actually saw the film and and saw how terrifying and uh, horrifying, actually, the uh, what if it was Billy, we'll never know, if, if what Billy was saying. But, I mean, there was a lot that I signed up on on that film that I didn't know I would actually be doing, like actually sitting for hours with a dry cleaning bag over my head. <laughs> Claire, um, the really the, the scene she has where she sort of objects to the fact that the girls are making light of it, uh, she sort of has a bit of a strained relationship with Barb, Margot Kidder, who calls her a professional virgin. Right. And she kind of walks off. I'm wondering well, if... go ahead. Oh, sorry, I was just wondering if your relationship with Margot Kidder was better than Claire's relationship with Barb. <laughs> I found her quite intimidating because she, she was Barb. I must admit, Luke, quite honestly, up until that point in my career, I was a professional virgin. (laughs) So most of the people I played ended up dying in some kind of gruesome death or rape or something like that. So I I was playing those kind of roles. In fact, at one point, we were counting how many ways I died by drowning, by jumping out of a tall building. I mean, there's many, many ways. I was actually... um, strangled in a snowbank. So, I, I mean, I've died many, many times, and, you know, and here I am still to tell the tale. One of the real joys of working with Bob Clark is he, he made it like a sorority, like a family every day we went to work. It was lovely. And that party feeling of the first party of the film seemed to sort of permeate throughout the whole film, which is something that I found really endearing because the subject matter itself, if you're working on it, if you're doing a horror film, can be very unsettling and can give you nightmares. And it can be a very unpleasant experience, especially if you're, you know, simulating horrible death scenes and being terrified every day by something while you're at work uh, making the film. So making it pleasant and making it very jolly and very sort of Christmas-like was really, I think, good for all of us that we didn't, we felt very close to one another. Margot was, to me, even at that point, and Olivia, too, were sort of huge, big stars to me. Um, Mainly, uh, you know, Olivia for Romeo and Juliet, and because I was basically a Shakespearean actress at that time, to be able to talk to her about Zeffirelli and her experiences. And Margot, just because 
in Canada, hugely famous because she had, in fact, made it big in the United States as well. And so she pretty much embodied Barb while she played that role. I think she would, she wouldn't be upset with me for saying that, rest her darling soul. And she did make us laugh. And she did, you know, um, when she had to be a bit, <laughs> she'd have a little, <laughs> right. So she was uh, delightfully in her cups and, and quite astonishing to watch work, fearless. Yeah, I, I did hear that she, um, she was very method with that turtle scene. <laughs> yes, very method with the turtle scene. And really enjoyed the scene in the police station where she took, took on um, Doug McGrath. You know, that's one of the most brilliant moments in the film, especially her reaction once she realises that the police officer doesn't know what fellatio yeah. means. Brilliant. Then it must be so such a satisfying feeling to have been part of a horror film where the women are not portrayed as stock standard screen queens, but intelligent, sensible, not boy crazed, not ageist. They have real dimension in so many ways, the opposite of the girls that we see in the original Halloween, even. It must have been lovely to know that Bob Clark was looking after, was representing women so well, and that you're a part of that legacy. None of us knew at that time the, the kind of long, long life that Black Christmas would have. I mean, it was, you know, a little Canadian horror film. Not, none of us would have ever imagined that we would be sitting here now talking on Skype long distance to Australia about this film. These women were all um, very empowered. And if anything, you know, Black Christmas and another film that I did, which has very similar message of empowering women, uh, another horror film called Curtains, it empowers us in a way that I think we were very much ahead of their time. When you think of the scene with Olivia and Pierre Delay, where she talks about getting an abortion, that was unheard of. Mm. It was not something so way ahead of its time that a woman would make that, a young woman would make that choice and stick to it and be very sort of adamant about her decision about her own body. That's like, wasn't even in our imaginations back then that we would have that kind of gumption and spunk to say, I own my own body and I make my own choices. So in that respect, both of those films, I find incredibly sort of relevant to today's situation that if you watch both of them, you see all the women in them are very well represented. And even though we end up at the hands of some horrible serial killer, we stood up to him. If you get a chance to see Curtains, the tagline for Curtains is uh, six actresses are up for the same part and one of them will kill to get it, <laughs> literally. Another horror film that lay dormant and didn't even have, uh, I mean, it had a terrible kind of bootleg version of it floating around on VHS and then they recently did a whole new beautiful remaster of it in uh, you know blu-ray and dvd and it's getting some notice for those very same reasons i did see curtains and i thought it was so much fun i loved it and i particularly loved you in it and i actually did write a couple of questions about curtains that i was hoping you might be good enough to answer of course your first scene in curtains you're doing stand-up comedy Oh, my God. Yes, I was. You're really funny. And I was wondering, was that awkward for you to do that scene? It was very awkward. And I'll tell you why. Because they said, okay, so 
if you want to write a little bit, write a little, you know, a few jokes and just get up, but we're actually going to film it in an actual comedy club here in Toronto, which was called Yuck Yucks, which was very, very famous because that's where Jim Carrey started his career. And there's going to be an actual live audience. We're not going to hire extras. We're just going to bring in an audience like it's a regular night and you'll do your bit. I mean, I had never done anything like that before. I had been, you know, I, I called myself Miss Ingenue, you know, who had done all these very dramatic parts on stage, and I'd never done comedy at all. I have a great uh, um, respect for stand-up comics, because standing up in front of a live audience with your own material and trying to make them laugh, even though you know, there were cameras rolling, so they knew they had to at least look interested. <laughs> <laughs> not, you know, enjoying themselves. I found it quite terrifying, uh, and I've never continued to do it since. <laughs> it's not to say that I haven't done comedy, and I love playing comedy, and I've done a lot of comic plays. In my older years, I find I get cast that way <laughs> because I have this little face. I can't do anything about it. I have this little face that looks like I could be your sweet little nanny. I, you know, I could be Mrs. Doubtfire. <laughs> so I do get cast in car. I mean, I, I play Mrs. Santa in, in two uh, Christmas movies with, you know, Jenny McCarthy. So, um, yeah, I mean, I have done <laughs> lots of comedy since. But it's not the same as standing up in front and doing your own material. Even doing a play... You know, you've got that safety net of the playwright's words that you're speaking. And you worked in that film with Samantha Egger, who uh, was so good in The Collector. And was a, a very, very um, important film for me. I had watched that film many, many times because I was a big Terrence Stamp fan. Mm. So again, you know, I was a bit gobsmacked to be working opposite Samantha and also when we came back for the reshoots doing a scene one-on-one -on -one with her it was really uh it was really a joy for me I mean she wasn't particularly warm and friendly with us only because you know when you're doing a film you you do very much take on the characters and because all of the girls were sort of in this one sort of clique in the film, and Samantha was obviously very jealous of all of us. That I think there was some of that going on. She kept her, her distance from us a, a little bit. I mean, there weren't, you know, great hen parties where we all got around and, you know, told stories of our careers and the men in our lives or whatever. That never happened. You know, my memory of her is quite aloof, and she had a, a, a handler with her who, made a lot of the decisions for her and there was one moment where we were all sitting in makeup chairs and the little costume designer came running in with some dresses and Samantha was in the chair next to me and her handler was there as well which is, was a quite stern young British woman and the costume designer came in with a couple of different dresses and said Miss Edgar we'd like you to look at these see if either of you you know either of these dresses meet your approval and the handler Samantha just did sort of one of those side eyes to the handler, and the handler said, we don't like either of those dresses. Thank you. Uh, wow. <laughs> That's who I want to be. I'm going to have a handler like that and just, you know, 
sense people often. <clears throat> so with curtains, seeing as how we're just talking about that a little bit, the director, Richard um, Kuka, he ultimately took his name off the film because I think he had creative differences with the producer, Peter Simpson. Yes. Yeah. He was trying to make a very avant-garde, sort of very lyrical, melodic horror movie, which a lot of that still exists in the final in the film that's available for people to get. But there's also these scenes of 80s splatter kind of stuff. And I, I, I've got, you can almost feel the conflict in the film. Was that what it was, do you think? Oh, definitely. I really, really loved working with Richard. And I thought he, I mean, he was an auteur, even at that young age. He had a really uh, imaginative and, as you said, very artistic vision for the film. And some of the scenes that I like the best are, you know, when the camera's on the move around the table, when all the girls are sitting there. Oh, so, so beautifully done. I think you can tell. Well, I certainly can. But I think even an audience has, could have a suspicion of what was shot later when... Richard took his name off the picture and Peter Simpson came in to direct because the whole scene with Sandy Curry in the costume shop and the prop shop, that was all shot later. The final scene between Samantha and I was shot later. And there are a lot of uh, loose ends, I think, in the film as well. You go, why is Michael Wincott floating in the jacuzzi and how, who killed him? There's a little bit of confusion, I think, naturally when you watch it that you're not sure at the end well clearly patty had uh, <laughs> <some> psychological problems <laughs> the original ending had me standing in a rundown almost kind of like vaudeville theater with all the bodies of the dead girls lined up behind me in chairs and doing my stand-up act to an empty theater. I, I think in some ways it's a shame. I mean, Richard and I are still Facebook friends, and so he's very, it's funny because he's so appreciative of me going out and speaking about it and promoting the film, yet his own connection, I mean, we didn't have any part of it, really, of knowing what had transpired between the first shoot and the second shoot and what actually had been, what the disagreement had actually been about, although obviously Richard didn't get the final cut, and that's when he chose to take his name off the film. However, then, to list Jonathan Stryker as the director of the film seemed very odd when he's the director, the actor in the film. So I think people who watch it without hearing any of the background probably are very confused you, you know again it's so funny that we we talk about these two films and the young women who see he, who see them go i think these are really important to you know where we are as women today and that, that that's why we like to see these films because they are empowering for women just to go back to black christmas for a minute your on-screen murder it's the fright, most frightening moment in the film for me and you come towards that curtain and those hands leap out at you oh i, I jumped out of my skin so thank you for that <laughs> Uh, but look, after that, we, we constantly returned to your corpse in this rocking chair. And it, beca it became the film's signature image. You know, it became one of the iconic images of horror. So you've told me those scenes weren't very comfortable. What, what, what was not comfortable about it, I guess, apart from the obvious? Well, first of all, I mean, we, we did have to sort of figure out how to make it work. Uh, at first, we thought, well, we put the plastic bag over your head and we'll poke some little breathing holes in the nose, and you'll be fine. You'll be able to breathe. But, of course, 
once we did that, we saw that you could see the bag slightly moving and that condensation would form under the bag. So it was like, well, that's not going to work. So then uh, we're going to just put the bag over your head and we're going to see, you know, how long can you actually sustain, you know, having your eyes wide open and your mouth wide open and not breathe. And it was like, yeah, I w I'm, I'm kind of all for it. And Bob actually was sitting across from me. Like if I'm sitting in the rocking chair, here he was right in front of me and he actually was the one who had his foot on the rocker and was rocking the chair and so he was in total charge and he would say you know we have a safety if you ever feel that you're you know blacking out or something you'll let me know and we'll stop the take but we did i mean we filmed it over and over and over again the funny part was when we just he decided we were going to have claude the cat like jump up on my lap and lick my face. Of course, Claude was hired because of his beauty, not of his particular talent. So Claude didn't really want to do this trick at all. So what, you know, we were thinking we, he would just jump up on my lap. Well, he wouldn't. So Bob had Claude on his lap and he would throw the cat at me so that it would land on my lap. But oftentimes Claude would land partially on my lap and then with claws extended slide slowly mm. down my leg anyway claw didn't want to do that so they finally decided the best thing to do was to spray my face with catnip <laughs> and bob would, would put the cat on my lap and then the cat would come up and and lick my face and we got the shot but it was quite uncomfortable and in fact now that i think of it there was actually another film where a cat was thrown on my head. Yeah, I did one of the Anne of Green Gables movies and the, the cat had to be, and we were trying to do it at midnight, trying to get the cat to land onto my head. And finally I just said, oh, just throw the cat on my head. Let's just get the take. And, and it worked perfectly, but you know, they're trying to do it to protect you. And so they don't harm you. And you know, in the end you just go, oh, just, just let's do it. Just let. It's like I always say: if I have to be slapped in a film, just slap me. Don't pretend to slap me. Just slap me. I did a, a miniseries called "I'll Take Manhattan," and the character jumps off a very tall building and commits suicide. Well, of course, we had to do the jump, not off a tall building, but we did it in a studio, and it was at least I would say the platform I jumped from could have been eight to ten feet high, and all there was on the ground below me was like a mattress and they wanted me to do like not like a jump like feet first but like one of those deadfalls head first and it was terrifying and I was like do I not have a stunt double <laughs> when, you know you sign up for these things you go what, where's my stunt double oh well, you know I don't have a stunt double oh you just give it a try so I was terrified of course I did it and then I loved it and I wanted to do it many more times because it was so much fun. I did a film last year called uh, a remake of Fahrenheit 451 and they set me on fire. You know, they were going, oh, you're not, you're not going to be anywhere near the fire. You know, on the actual day, the fire was maybe three feet in front, well, and surrounding me all the way around. I mean, I could feel the singe starting to happen. Brilliant because you don't have to act. I'm feeling the heat. I'm feeling the fear of being actually burnt alive and I guess with Black Christmas as well because it was low budget and because it was the 70s that would have been a pretty guerrilla style way of make, oh, filmmaking there wouldn't have been too many OH&S people around I imagine oh no and and the other thing that uh really sets Black Christmas apart is 
uh, Bert Dunk, who was the cinematographer, he was the one responsible sort of for really creating the first Steadicam because that camera was strapped to him. It was actually him crawling up the trellis outside the house at first. He was the one in the closet who strangled me. The camera was on his body and it was his hands that came out and strangled me. It's very interesting. And it's also interesting that apparently John Carpenter and Bob Clark had quite a a good friendship. You want to know something really fascinating? Yes. When I moved to L.A., uh, I lived in Los Angeles for 12 years, and I was married to my first husband there. We bought John Carpenter's house. So I lived in John Carpenter and Adrian Barbeau's house when I first lived in L.A. on uh, 8862 Wonderland Avenue. So there's that was that fascinating connection when I went, wow. And, and Nancy Loomis, Nancy Kyes, who played the first girl who was oft in Halloween. Talk about not even six degrees of separation. One of my favorite moments is we return to to Claire upstairs and, you know, there are two really sick moments. The first is the cat where we see the cat licking her. But there's Mm -hmm. a second one where we see that the killer has put a doll in her hand and has manipulated her hand around the doll. I was wondering, do you remember if that was in the script or whose idea that was to do that? Oh, it was probably Bob's, yeah. And I think one of the pic- one of the photos I sent you was of that moment. It is, yes. I, I really can't sing Bob Clark's praises more highly because he was so inventive on the fly and thought of things like that and would go, oh, you know, because we did spend quite a lot of time up in the attic shooting things from different angles and coming up with different thoughts and ideas. So I would assume it's very much, very much... Bob's idea to put to do that. The, th- the thing that's so funny about that mo- that moment of that day of shooting that is that because I was sort of dead, I kind of am in a sort of like a fugue state. I know I was there and I was in that chair for hours and hours and hours. I think you sort of forget everything that's all happening around you. And of course there's crew and there's lights and there's things things flying all around. And I have an ability to do that, which is why I'm always good at the dentist as well, because I can just sort of go into this state that's almost meditative, I guess. I do it the same because I I actually, at one point in my life, I was posing a lot as a as a model for painters because I can hold still for so long. You know, there were times when they had to sort of shake me and go, okay, uh, we're breaking for lunch now. Lynn, Lynn, <laughs> you can get out of the chair. We're going to come down. You can have your lunch now. You know, that kind of thing. Um, Lynn, you're wrapped for the day. Hello. <laughs> Meanwhile, you've been wrapped all day. Ah, yeah, well, I gave you that one. You gave, you handed it to me. It must have been a little dismaying or unnerving for you to see your suffocated corpse on all the poster art with your face locked in that frozen screen when the film came out. No, I loved it. I loved it. Are you kidding me? When they first showed me the mock-up 
for the poster. You know, they say, are you okay with this? And I was like, oh my God, absolutely delighted. That poster art, you know, in the long run has made me quite wealthy. Well, not wealthy, but certainly paid my dry cleaning bill. You know, when I go to conventions, that photograph is one that everyone wants a signed copy of. And, and I'm delighted with that. There's nothing like having an iconic movie poster. That's like tremendous. And to be on the cover of all the DVDs, I mean, I just find that astonishingly flattering and delightful. So no, bring it on. I mean, I'm ready to be on more movie posters if, they, if anyone is willing. I'm proud of it. I'm proud of it. Sometimes when you're at conventions, it feels like a little bit like you're, you know, at a fruit market and you're sitting there like in your stall and people walk by and some people will, you know, they're looking at Alan Griffin and they'll look up at you and they'll go, hmm. you know, not interested. <laughs> or some people will be interested. But when things get really, really slow at the conventions, this is what I do to get attention. <laughs> For our listeners, Lynn just had a plastic bag on standby and put it completely over her head. I recreated the moment. Recreated it beautifully. I heard that Rachel Weiss and Daniel Craig may owe you a thank you for getting them married. It's true. It's true. I don't know. If, they don't know the story, but Jim Sheridan, at one point I was walking down the stairs and we'd done a lot of prep on that film of the actors in the film sitting around at a table and just discussing the script and the script went through a lot of rewrites. So we were there sort of day after day for about two weeks just doing uh, actual script work. And I was going down the stairs and Jim Sheridan was coming up the stairs and he, he looked at me and he said, I'm in this dilemma. I'm not sure who to hire in this role. And I, I'm thinking of Jennifer Connelly or Rachel Weiss. And I said, oh, I think you should hire Rachel Weiss because she's got this wonderful warmth. I mean, as much as I love Jennifer Connelly, she's a bit on the cool side mm. and just comes off a, a, not quite as, because she's got to be a warm mother. She's got to be very caring. And he said, oh, okay. Oh, I, oh, I'll think that's what I'll do, he says, and off he trottles down the hallway. Next thing I know, she shows up, and I'm going, oh, my God, what did I do? I gave him a little nudge to hire her as opposed to, but isn't that a funny story? That's amazing. Did I change the course of her life? That's <laughs> it. You created one of the uh, modern Hollywood power couples without even meaning to. Who knew? <laughs> you know, that, that kind of chemistry. But obviously, you know, the chemistry was good for the film. I don't know that they know about it. And even if they did, they'd probably go, oh, please, it had nothing to do with that. It being the month of Halloween, I'm wondering, do you have any favorite horror films? Well, I do like watching Halloween. I'm very curious to see the new one. My idea of horror is psychological horror. I mean, I'm a great Hitchcock fan. I love something when I, it, it's a mystery that's un, unraveling. I don't like seeing really violent things or things like home invasions. I mean, or Saw. I once worked with an actress who was in one of those Saw movies and said, you know, she was strung upside down and her body was supposedly cut with a saw. She was hanging naked and cut with a saw from, you know, stem to stern. And I don't really care to see that. But if it's a psychological thriller, you know, I think, oh, because I love Audrey Hepburn, I think of Wait Until Dark, films like that. I think what frightens me more or what I'm drawn to more is in the films where 
you don't know, you can't see what's happening, which is one of the reasons why I think Black Christmas works so well, because it's a mystery and you're not sure who the killer is. So you're not seeing graphic violence. Do you have anything, um, any like upcoming projects or anything that you're kind of working on at the moment where our listeners might be able to find you? If there's anyone in Toronto listening, we will be playing at Solar Stage in Toronto. We will be doing a Christmas Carol comedy. Thank you so much, Lynn. Oh, well, thank you, Luke. I know you're doing your step, Billy. You're answering this Who are you? For God's sake, what are you doing? I know what you did, Billy. Filthy Billy. Billy, Billy. Stop this. Let's talk a little bit about Billy. Okay. You know, Carol Clover, <laughs> to quote someone new for this episode. <laughs> She defines the killers of slasher films and cites examples like Norman Bates, Leatherface and Michael Myers are suffering from a form of gender confusion and arrested development. Generally, it's the result of some psychosexual disturbance that keeps them in the grip of boyhood. Psycho not only drew a line in the sand between men and women, but it also married Freudian theory to the serial killer, combination that has proved very enduring. The reason it's probably enduring is that it's come from real life. We know that Norman Bates was in part inspired by Ed Gein, who would dress up in his mother's skin and pretend to be his mother and talk in her voice. And, you know, but, you know, Billy in this film, he exhibits many signs of gender confusion and certainly arrested development. You know, often on the phone, he assumes a female voice, impersonating either his mother or sister Agnes. And he seems to be playing out memories from childhood as if they're currently occurring. You know, it's not like he's remembering. It's like he's in the memory of being a little boy. You know, his violent fit in the attic is reminiscent of a young child's temper tantrum. Before he kills Barb, he calls her Agnes, which suggests that he remains trapped or has posited her for Agnes. And most tellingly, when we see his eye looking at Jess through the crack in the door, it's wide with childlike alarm. He doesn't appear to be a man who is in control of himself. He's someone who has been rendered unable to separate then from now. We don't ever get the sense that he's in control in the way that Michael Myers is in control of what he's doing. That's right. And Michael Myers never talks, so he's stripped of even more personality, if anything. It's never really deeply explored in this movie, so you have to draw some inferences from it. But I agree with you, there's definitely some Freudian issues that need to be investigated. And as I said before, these kind of manifest themselves in these multi-personality vocalisations that seem to be conversations between him and his mother. His uh, stepfather makes an appearance at one point and Agnes is referenced a lot. This, as I said before, kind of makes him a little bit similar rather than different to Jason Voorhees. Throughout this movie, though, he has little to no actual identity and he's only seen clearly his eye on one occasion. This is different to Halloween, Friday the 13th, The Nightmare on Elm Street, Scream where the antagonist would be the central feature, if not the first film of that franchise, or certainly the subsequent films. And that was often to the detriment of character development of the other characters in the movies. So while it's difficult to really discern too much from Billy as a character in this film alone, we can determine that he is a man-child of some description, with issues dating back to a controlling mother during his childhood, and that he had a sister named Agnes, of whom we know nothing. Any more than that, we'd be guessing. 
although there's plenty of theories out there that are independent of the movie, uh, the remake goes in depth about Billy's childhood, which is something that remakes often do, but that should not necessarily change our interpretation of the character that's presented here. In the remake, his full name is given as Billy Lenz, and he's suffering from liver disease, which has caused severe jaundice. He's physically and mentally abused by his mother, who along with the man who would become his stepfather, murder his biological father. When his stepfather can't get his mother pregnant, she instead rapes Billy and gives birth to Agnes, who is now no longer only Billy's sister, but also his daughter. Does this much expanded knowledge add anything to our interpretation of the character? Probably not, because the original presents Billy as an unknown, and this in turn aids in characterising the girls. And the remake undoes a lot of this by humanising the killer, attempting again to place him into the role of the anti-hero and potentially the focus of a would-be franchise. By comparison, the girls become merely one-dimensional bodies to be murdered. I agree with you. Demystifying Billy is the worst thing that they could possibly do. I mean, what makes Billy terrifying is these unanswered questions, is that he's kind of elusive, that we get these sudden purging of his madness, but that we, we can't contextualise it. You know, Bob Clark doesn't let us contextualise it. Bob Clark said that he had a whole story in his head about Billy and what, what had happened to him. <laughs> I did write it down. It didn't make much sense to me. Clark's refusal to give him material shape, coupled with his madness, which is unexplained, makes him terrifying. And it also reflects how a sane person can never really know or understand an insane person. So not giving him any clear markers or identification or bridges to understand is a clever representation of this divide. There's a critic named John Kenneth Muir who's written a series of books focusing a lot on horror films, and he actually thinks Billy was the most effective part of the original film. He stated that the Mona is a really creepy villain, his sick oddball voice is frightening, and the things he says are downright horrid. The phone call scenes work because we've all been played by prank callers, and some of us have been played by prank callers while in our own homes. And I think this is a valuable insight into why Black Christmas is so effective. Many of the most effective thrillers are successful because they make us most uncomfortable in a setting that's familiar and safe, like our own home, around our own family and friends. And Bob Clark knew that revealing the killer would take away from this, as in these circumstances, the unseen is far more sinister than the scene. I um, was, for about a year, was getting plagued with prank calls. <laughs> I really was. It would happen every month or six weeks, and it was always the same. I'd pick up, and they would say one sentence, and it was a sentence like, I'm really sorry, I missed your call. I'm really sorry. And they would just hang up. And what was haunting about it was that I didn't know who was doing it or why they were doing it, or what their motive was. That's what's frightening about when someone behaves that way, is that they're faceless, and you don't know who or why, and it's just really unsettling, you know, to get woken up at 1am from a phone call, and that's what you hear, and then they hang up. And I think it's because when you are in a place that feels safe, you're not on high alert. You know, you step mm -hmm. out the front door, and you go into the city and you go shopping and stuff and you you might not be on high alert but you're on some kind of alert you're around other people other people have independent thoughts and feelings and actions things that you have no control over so you're aware that something could happen whereas in your own home with a locked front door i mean you think i'm safe here i guess uh, a film like black christmas takes that away from you the outside world finds a way in not through a door but it finds a way into your safe space mm. just like the film hider in the house <laughs> He's already there. Hider in the House is a great film starring Gary Busey. He's up there. Julie. Planning. 
watching, waiting. Vestron Pictures presents Gary Busey, Mimi Rogers, Hyder in the house. Oh, look, save it for the episode on that movie. Let's talk a little bit about the girls in the film. Bob Clark said of the women in the movie that he certainly intended to make these characters affirmative and intelligent. And I think he really does do that in a way that is quite unique. That's one thing that's made possible by removing the identity of the killer from the film, essentially, is that you are able to humanise and and work on and put time into the characters who are actually at threat. What's wonderful about these girls is that they're not obsessed with finding a empty house so that they can take their boyfriend there and have sex with them. What we get more than that is, is unification of the girls. You know, when one goes missing, the girls go with the father to the police station. At one point we see Andrea Martin crying in Jess's arms because she's just scared for Claire and what's happened to her. Barb, she's the most reckless one, the most outrageous one. But what's wonderful about the film is that Bob Clark kind of gives us a bit of a insight into why she might be that way because the first thing that we really see in the film is Barb getting a call from her mother saying, I'm going out with some new guy. And she says she calls her mother a gold-plated whore, you know, because her mother doesn't really want to see her at Christmas time, which is horrible. So, you know, this is a displaced person a little bit, which might explain why she's sort of lashing out a little bit and is feeling a little devil-may-care in, in the way she behaves. And then, of course, we get Jess, who has made a decision about what she's going to do. She has a problem. She's pregnant. She doesn't want to be. She's made a decision that she's going to take care of that. And Pete's the one that acts hysterical and throws a fit and can't get his shit together about it. These are tremendously fine examples of young women on screen and they feel far more authentic than Laurie Strode's two friends in Halloween. Well, I mean, if you were to put these characters into Halloween, Claire would survive until the end, Barb would be the first one gone and Jess would also be gone at some point. Another thing that's really good is that I I said about the trope of the asshole boyfriend before and Peter is not that. Peter is a very intelligent character. He's portrayed that way. He's uh, portrayed almost like a fatherly figure for Jess. He's a concert pianist in training, so he's obviously very intelligent. His becoming unhinged as the film goes on is purely down to things that are occurring to him. Jess's decision to abort that baby, stuffing up his piano audition. There's a lot going on with that character as well that makes this idea that he could potentially be the killer far more interesting than it's usually portrayed in in slasher films where, oh, this boyfriend's an asshole, so he's got to be the killer. I mean, this is not just one of those portrayals. No, and very often when it is turns out to be the boyfriend, it's a very two-faced performance. So right up until the reveal... He's this loving, concerned, there's no signs, no signs. And then suddenly he flips. I mean, a a really good example of that is Scream. Obviously, Scream does this tongue-in-cheek, so you you excuse that. I'm not saying Scream's a bad film because it's not. It's a very good film. But the portrayal of, of that character in Scream is just kind of taking the piss out of all of the films that have done it that way before. Tell me why. Why? Come on, Jules, think about it. You'll get it. Will Benton... Ben's son!
It's good that the film isn't afraid to make Pete a suspect. But psychologically, him becoming unhinged is so interesting to watch in this movie. And the reason for it. Yeah. Jess understands that she's never going to get Pete to see things from her point of view. He's sort of saying to her when after he thinks he's failed his piano recital. And he's like, well, I don't want to live in a dorm. We're going to buy a house. We're going to get married. You're going to have the baby. I mean, she tries only once to explain it. She says, do you remember you told me when we first met all the things you wanted to do? And then I told you some of the things I wanted to do. I still want to do those things. And he says to her, well, you can still do them. But the reality is if she gets married to him and has a baby, she can't do them. But he will never concede that. He can always just fall back on, you can still do them. Marriage isn't a life sentence. She knows the world does not work that way, especially for a woman. And she doesn't even try. She knows he's so steeped in the male entitlement thing that there is just no way of convincing him. And I think in many ways, the disintegration of Jess and Pete's relationship throughout the film perfectly embodies the divide between the heterosexual male and, and the women. Their inability to understand each other ultimately culminates in Jess mistaking Pete for the killer and stabbing him to death. So the film does have that sense of there is this divide between men and women and it is unbridgeable. One thing I also really like about it is that these girls are all attending university. They are all attending on their own intellectual merits and if they're not, it's never stated otherwise. So we we have to assume that they have careers and futures that they are working towards and building towards and that is often not something that is present in slasher films that are set in universities even halloween i mean you look at some of those girls and you think are they really at university (laughs) they really at college whereas this film's not like that i mean jess actively makes that decision so that she can continue down her chosen career path Mm-hmm. That's a ballsy decision for someone that age to make in that time. And it's presented without criticism, and I love that. You're right. There isn't any judgment on it. If anything, the film almost admires her. Mm. Yeah, Nash, what is it? A phone company's on the other line, sir. They say they got a trace on this one. Yeah, let's have it. He says the calls are coming from number six, Belmont Street. For Christ's sakes, Nash, you got it wrong. That's where the calls are going into. That's where they're coming from too, sir. One interesting thing about Black Christmas is the idea of the collective male and the collective female. What's interesting to me is that when Pete calls Jess near the end of the film, he is so broken up that his voice sounds a little bit like Billy. And for a little, maybe 30 seconds or 10 seconds, you're not sure that it's Pete until Jess goes, Pete. I don't know if you've read this, but I believe they actually did use the voice that was voicing voicing Billy for some of that, and they overdubbed some of Kia Dahlia's lines. That's really interesting. That was a conscious decision from Bob Clark. In that, there is this subliminal idea of men not as individuals but as a collective. The male collective has a lot of rage and resentment towards the female protagonist. Conversely, it can be argued that the killer has confused his mother or sister Agnes with one of the sorority sisters, or all of them. Carol Clover calls it corporate liability. So you're angry at one individual woman, but then all she becomes is her gender. And so anyone who fits in line with that gender is liable for the sins of that particular individual. Another portrayal that I really like is um, Mrs. McHenry. Again, usually in the majority of films, the house mother would be a dominant and authoritarian figure. And she's not. She's a drunk. 
She's she's their friend, you know, she's just getting by. And they have real affection for her. Yeah. No, she is great, and it's great that the girls aren't ageist. Just to talk a little bit about the final girl, that is a term that is used so often, but very few people actually know its definition as it was originally coined by Carol Clover. So I thought I'd just talk a little bit about that. I guess the principal argument of Clo- Clover's essay, which is vast and has so many interesting things in it. That's freely available online, so I think we'll post a link to the PDF of that article as well for anybody that's interested. Oh, great. So worth a read. Did you read it? No. (laughs) (laughs) So it has to do with gender confusion or blurriness of the final girl and killer in slasher films. Her argument is that the final girl, in our case Jess, is figuratively masculine meaning that she embodies qualities that are traditionally deemed heterosexually masculine. She has no interest in sex with males. She's investigative. And when she picks up a weapon and goes after the killer, this weapon, whether it be a knife or a sledgehammer or in our case, fire poker, are, according to Clover, symbolic of her claiming a surrogate phallus. And that it's only once the final girl claims this penetrative weapon that she becomes materially male and is able to eliminate the threat. I know, you're giving me serious, like, I want to say something. (laughs) Let me just get through her argument. Conversely, Clover argues that the killer is anatomically male, but figuratively female. And she cites Norman Bates and Leatherface and even Michael Myers as exhibiting symptoms of either gender confusion or arrested development. Some psychological impediment which has obstructed their development into the much idealised adult male. This, she says, explains why slasher films are appealing, at least subconsciously, predominantly to men. The final girl is hampered by her anatomical femininity, but ultimately wins as a result of her figurative masculinity. Conversely, the killer is strong due to his anatomical masculinity, but thwarted in the end by his figurative femininity. Ergo, slasher films are celebrations of maleness, like mirrored celebrations of maleness. Now, before I let you comment on this. I have a few problems with this theory myself. I think it's a great, fascinating, interesting thing to read. It certainly made me look at the film in a different way. And that's what great criticism does. So that's the first thing I want to say, because I don't want to in any way disparage Clover. I think her work in this field is great. But it's necessary for the final girl to grab a weapon, just on a practical level. Unless we have a final girl who can bump off the killer with her bare hands or some non-penetrative weapon like a giant vacuum, then Clover can always claim it as further validation. If nothing short of the absurd is going to disprove her theory, then is it really a theory? I don't know. Like, is it a theory that holds water? I'm not sure. Secondly, if we accept the weapon as a surrogate phallus and the killer is usually anatomically male, whilst almost always being in possession of a weapon, it follows that he's then in possession of two phalluses. And why would he need two? The other thing, and I mean, this is probably the the easiest one to kind of poke holes at, it presupposes certain behavioural and psychological characteristics as either male or female, i.e. strength and curiosity as primarily masculine and primitive terror as primarily feminine. And although there are undeniable differences between male and female psychology, I don't know that it's as cut and dry as pop psychology and Freudian theory would have initially said. I think that is hitting the nail on the head. And that's the biggest problem I have with this theory is that you are assigning your own definition of masculinity and your own definition of femininity to the actions of a person who may not have those same ideas. And suddenly when you do something like that, you are saying your actions are merely a representation of my thoughts 
which is not always the case. Somebody else may do something for a reason other than the reason that you think they're doing it. This idea that this is masculine and this is feminine, I think, is harmful, but I think it also allows someone like Carol Clover to state with some kind of certainty that this is what's happening. If, if she defines it this way and then she finds representations in horror movies that support her theory, I mean, and it's it's natural for somebody to then run with that. And people do that in their everyday lives. They look for self-fulfilling prophecies. Any kind of film theory that puts different goggles on you to, to look at a film that you've seen a million times and, and never seen that, I, I think that there is room for that. And, you know, and, and I like it and I'm, I'm in support of it. As I was reading it, was both fascinated and frustrated. I mean, look, this is coming from a woman. We aren't women. So, you know, our, we are looking at it with that disadvantage. However, we are gay. So we're not heteronormative males. And so that does give us some advantage over how heterosexual men might read her essay. I would understand more this theory if it was 100% true all of the time, or at least a, a, a large percentage of the time, and I don't think it is. The boy who's uh, stabbed and stuck to the wall in Halloween, he's penetrated with a knife, a male on male. Kevin Bacon in the Friday the 13th with a spear going through his throat. He is uh, penetrated <laughs> with a, a phallic object, male on male. Yeah. I mean, there are hundreds, if not thousands, of examples like that that we could come up with. It is not solely male on female. It is not a male audience killing a female character. It's not. It happens a lot. If uh, there's a YouTube channel out there called Dead Meat, he's, he's a really funny guy, but he does kill count videos. And so I've recently gone through and watched all of his Friday the 13th kill count videos, so all 10 or 11 of those. And at the end, he does a final tally of males that are killed and females that are killed. And in a lot of those movies, it's uh, quite a bit lopsided, more males killed than females. So this gender imbalance is... It's often not real. I've distilled Clover's essay and really, you know, I've missed so much and there are so many mitigating factors and her essay is so dense and covers a lot of things. One argument she makes is though, yes, even though there are males that are killed in these slasher films, the camera lingers, is more interested in the brutalisation and torture and death of the female characters. Again, I would disagree. There, there are so many examples where the camera lingers and is interested in the brutalisation of the male character. And if you don't find that sexual, that is on you. If you find the female deaths sexual and the male deaths non-sexual, that is on you. That is not necessarily the representation of the filmmaker. And that is not how everyone is watching them. No. Our camera is a POV shot, usually from the killer's perspective. So the best examples are in Halloween, in the very opening shot, when he's stalking his sister. And we get a lot of it in Black Christmas. You know, we have the point of view of Billy coming down from the attic or having a fit or whatever he's doing. And the idea is that, okay, so if the eye camera equals identification, then it's asking the audience to identify with the killer. And a lot of the time in these slasher films... Young men would go to the cinema, and as the killer was slashing and killing, they would champion him. They would go, yes, hurrah, do it, slicer. This was um, of great consternation and disturbance to a lot of the people that object to slasher films because they were thinking, well, ugh, what is this propagating? It's sort of inciting these ugly feelings in men, feelings of, of 
rage against females and what is up with that. What Clover points out, and I think she references another writer who has said it, is that a lot of these people who had problems with that didn't stay to the end of the movie. By the end of the movie, those same boys that were cheering the killer are almost always cheering the final girl when she finally gets rid of the killer. Now, Clover would say, well, that's because the female is figuratively masculine, so they're still cheering for themselves. It's funny, we went and saw Halloween Wednesday night, the new Halloween. There were three boys. They must have been between 19 and 21 sitting on closer to where I was sitting right next to us. And I could hear them cheering Michael Myers on. When I watch Halloween, I don't feel like cheering when Michael Myers kills the women, but I do enjoy watching it. Like it's thrilling to watch these murders happen. Do you enjoy Michael Myers killing the men just as much? Oh yeah. Like it doesn't make any difference. In fact, in the new Halloween, I think the deaths of the the men were more exciting. You go and see a slasher film and for most people it is just go there, watch some people get killed in inventive ways and go home. For most people it's not it's not going to make one fuck of a difference if they are men or women getting killed and it's not going to allow them to have life-altering experience thinking, oh, I've just got out my aggression against my girlfriend by watching this woman get carved up on screen. 99% of the time, that's not the case with these horror movies. We're going to take a break now and play our interview with film critic and writer for Rue Morgue magazine, Paul Korup. Hello? It amazes me that Black Christmas was pretty much a forgotten film for a long time and it was only through writers and online bloggers like yourself that sort of led to this resurgence of the film. Do you remember that and do you remember and do you know why it would have fallen off the radar for so many years? It's funny because when I was in university I used to work at uh, HMV the music and a movie store and my boss there came to me one day and said have you ever heard of this movie called Black Christmas? It's, it's one of my favorite horror movies ever and I being a horror fan had not um, had not seen it at that point. I started looking into it because she wanted a copy and I thought, well, maybe I can help her find a copy. I looked around and uh, and discovered basically that it had been out of print for a long time. There were VHS releases, but they were, you know, years out of print at that point. And the, the film had kind of fallen off the radar of a lot of people. So aside from kind of some early VHS releases, that was about it at the time. Eventually, through some contacts, I managed to get kind of a VHS bootleg copy and, and watched that and gave a copy to my, to my manager realized it was Canadian, included it on my website, which was already going at that point. Interest in that film started to pick up around that time, back in the early days of my website, early 2000s. Now we've got several DVD releases, Blu-ray releases, all kinds of stuff has been coming out about it. Um, so it's really been, had a huge resurgence in the past, I don't know, 15 years to kind of claim a, its more rightful place uh, in the slasher canon. I did read a little bit about the tax shelter system in Canada. Did that have mm-hmm. anything to do with getting Black Christmas fine? Because from what I could read, it sort of took off in 1975, which was a year after. 
Black Christmas. It did. It, they increased it in 1975, but it did still exist in 1974 uh, when they were working on the film. It just wasn't as much. It's a complicated uh, legal history, but essentially the rules had been on the books since the 1960s, but it wasn't until the early 1970s, I think 1971 or 72, that some uh, that a tax accountant actually found them and realized that this was a this was a good deal for his clients and. Um, that kind of started to popularize them. So people were using the tax shelters, 72, 73, 74. Uh, I think they were at 60%. You could get 60% of, a, you know, every dollar you invested, you could get 60, cent back, 60 cents back on your taxes. And uh, in 1975, they, they increased it to 100%. So it was even a, it was a full tax shelter at that point, which lasted until 81, 82. A lot of those films that kind of just came out in the early 1970s, Canadian films, did for sure benefit. Um, the, not, not as much as some of the films that came later, but absolutely. If it, if it hadn't been for those tax shelters, Bob Clark probably wouldn't have moved to Canada and Black Christmas probably wouldn't have been made. What impact did it have on the Canadian film industry? Because I know that obviously the output of films went up a great deal, but what did it mean in terms of quality? Because I know that they would only back certain films that had real commercial viability, which meant I suppose that there were certain artistic constraints or perhaps people were making films for the wrong reasons. There was two separate things. There was the tax shelters, um, and pretty much any film could could qualify for a tax shelter. And then there was a the, the CFDC, which was a government uh, funding agency. So you could apply to have your project funded, essentially. And I believe Black Christmas did get funding. David Cronenberg Shivers is one of the most famous to get funding at the time because it was very controversial. And uh, once people saw the film, the CFDC had to kind of backpedal on the kinds of films <laughs> that they uh, were, were agreeing to fund. The, the thing with Canada, it had it had a very, very young industry, comparable in, in many ways to, to Australia's film industry but probably with less support at the time so the the issue kind of was that we had a lot of kind of young filmmakers and inexperienced technicians and and people who had not really solidly learned their craft yet making films so the films especially in that early time were very rough you had a lot of other people like Canadians who had gone to Hollywood and had now returned to make films or guys like Bob Clark who had you know made several films in Florida before they came to Canada to make these films which which were of obvious higher quality and just simply because of the experience. I think once, you know, once we continue to make films throughout the 70s and 80s, the quality um, increased. And I think by, you know, late 80s, early 90s, there was a big renaissance in Canadian film because a lot of these people had been now working for 20 years or had at least cinematographers and electricians and, and all these guys, had, they'd learned their craft by that time. So there, there was a definite uptick in the quality of those films. In terms of genres, the tax shelter did definitely kick off a big move towards genre filmmaking. Um, just because it was cheap, it was viable. We didn't need stars. You didn't need expensive special effects. You could just kind of make it quick and dirty genre movie that didn't uh, really make too many cultural critics very happy even black christmas came out i think mostly to bad reviews in canada but you know here we are 40 40 years later and it's the films like black christmas and shivers and sudden fury and other things like that that, that are are the films that people now remember or want to see again it seems crazy to me that uh black christmas would have ever reviewed poorly it's so tasteful and so sophisticated in so many ways interestingly there was a review in um, cinema canada magazine which was kind of the the big canadian film magazine throughout the 70s and early 80s and the reviewer called it a misogynistic slasher and while you could probably somewhat make the 
the case still. I mean, if you want to compare it to pretty much every other slasher film, it's probably the least misogynistic <laughs> slasher film that, you know, because the, the female characters are so well-developed, so well-rounded. It isn't just about um, killing nubile young women. But, uh, you know, at the time, without the context of all these other films, um, without even the context of Halloween, people thought that that was, that was a very misogynistic film. So That seems like a very, I don't know, almost like a very surface-level sort of go-to yeah. criticism for a film like this? Oh, for sure. Mm. I mean, you're right. The, the girls are so well-drawn. They have so much dimension. Also, Bob Clark's camera doesn't sexualize them at all. It's very... Oh. Yeah, I mean, the film's actually quite chaste in that way. Clark always had great characters even when he was making making you know cheap genre films and you know De death dream and even deranged which he also had a part in children shouldn't play with dead things the, the, the characters are always well developed and i managed to uh, interview clark twice before he died both times he was talking about you know the characters and the development and how much time and effort he spent into actually creating real three-dimensional type of people i mean he, he he really wanted that he really was interested in the human drama that was also happening between those characters you mentioned halloween i was wondering just for you how does black christmas rate next to halloween do you have a preference oh man I, uh, <laughs> that's a tough question personally I, I might sway a little bit more to black christmas and it's possibly just because i've seen it more times now because I've, I'm on one of the DVDs and, you know, I've had to watch it so many times to, to do interviews and to talk about it and to write about it that I really appreciate what Clark did. And of course, there's the story that Carpenter himself was inspired by Bob Clark's Black Christmas. But uh, to me, there's something a, a little more, you know, while, while Halloween is more about kind of the universal boogeyman, Clark's has a more human grounded dimension. You know, Billy is not the ultimate evil. Billy is not the shape. Billy is an insane person right you know an insane person who's hiding in your attic waiting to kill you it's a little less maybe thematically grand it feels more like a smaller intimate kind of film almost everything takes place in that film takes place in the house i mean there's a few scenes in the with the police and in the park and so forth but for the most part it's all just kind of very centered um, very small, and and to me that makes it more scary because the shadows in the dark house you can't escape it, right? It's it's uh, it's all right there. There's a lack of control. There's kind of a mania about him that I think is really freaky. Yeah, as opposed to Michael's kind of just stoic inscrutability of that character. You know, Billy feels unpredictable. Paul, you mentioned about the women being sort of having a lot of dimension, and and that they aren't, you know. These women in the film, they're not ageist or boy crazed. They don't make poor decisions. Um, and, you know, we have Jess considering having an abortion or has decided to have an abortion, rather. And she becomes the last mm. survivor, whereas we have Claire, the professional virgin, get murdered <laughs> first. I'm wondering, mm. do you think that Clark avoided the kind of final girl as puritan virgin trope because it didn't exist at the time or is it just really good writing uh, i don't think it existed at the time i mean um that that's definitely become the become the case since then but i don't think it was i don't think it ever kind of cl crossed clark's mind um, and it's certainly the, we don't have the, oh, so many films now that, you know, started to use that trope. It's almost funny because it's you watch it now and it seems so subversive, but it wasn't really subversive at the time. That was just the, you know, the only one they did. So, I mean, I do think it's well written, but um, 
I do think it just basically comes from Clark wanting to give his characters like a, a full-fledged interior lives. Like he, he just wanted to make sure that these characters were three-dimensional and believable. Talking about an abortion and her boyfriend disagreeing definitely is there to give him a motivation. Leaving her until last allows him to kind of t- um, tweak that mystery a little bit throughout the film. Is Billy her boyfriend? Can you can you tell me a little bit about because Warner Brothers picked up the film for you know wide distribution and they kind of changed the title. Can you tell me what happened there? Because that wasn't very successful for Warner Brothers, was it? No. What was the name of the, what was the title again? Was it Silent Night, Evil Night? Yeah, that's right. I mean, I guess they had picked up the film and um, did not want to use the title Black Christmas because they had, uh, because this was, you know, 1974 in the middle of the black exploitation uh, film explosion where you had films like, you know, Black Samson and Black Eye and all this, uh, all these other kind of action films with black heroes that um, they wanted to use that for. And they felt that this, you know, releasing a film like Black Christmas, people would go to the theater expecting to see something that other than what they got. So they did change the name, but I, I don't think the film was promoted very well or didn't play in in enough theaters or anything, but didn't seem to really catch on very much at the time. I think in the 80s and the early VHS era, its it's profile did rise to some degree, but it's really only been through DVDs and Blu-rays in the last 15 years, as I said, that that the film has really found its audience. I'm wondering what your take is on the ending of the film. Why does Jess stab Peter? Is it pretty clear in your mind that obviously the killer wasn't Peter and is still is still out there. I, yes, I, I believe that, you know, it's it's basically Billy's still out there. The, the film itself was originally written as a script called The Babysitter that apparently that I, I've heard since has, was kicking around the Canadian film industry for several years before Bob Clark got his hands on it. And from my understanding, it, it, the original script was a lot more like, uh, you know, sorry, wrong number. It really was about a, you know, a killer in the house that we don't know who it is. Um, I, I believe Clark wanted to retain that, that element. Billy is a crazy, unpredictable character living in the attic, but I think to him that that is what's scary. The mystery of it, it, is it her boyfriend, is a bit of a red herring, personally. And it just, to me, it sounds much, it's, it's much scarier that Billy has never caught, right? He's, he's still out there. He could be anyone. Did you ever see the remake? I didn't see the remake. <laughs> <laughs> and what, what I'm were not you... a fan of the remake. <laughs> no, neither. Oh, goodness. I only watched it a couple nights ago and I was really disappointed. Oh, it's funny because the film, the, the remake has uh, definitely gained some defenders over the over the years. Um, I, I write for uh, Rumored magazine and uh, I remember when the film came out and I was uh, doing some interviews at the time. I think I talked, I think I talked to one of the producers and went to see it theatrically and I think there was only about four other people in the theater <laughs> and I was yeah I was so disappointed I had heard about all these kind of issues that they were having with filming and it, it just seemed to me just to totally uh, miss the point of Black Christmas so I, as a lot of remakes do but but it's, it's hard now you know we've had you know when when Black Christmas came out it was one of the one of the first films to use this kind of formula you know we've since then had you know, after 30 years of, you know, ripoffs, they tried to do a remake and you can't kind of erase that the, the way those 30 years of other slasher films have changed the genre or changed our perceptions about the genre. So it's understandable that, you know, the film had to be different. You know, we have to know who now we now we need to know who Billy is. Now we need to know Billy's history and all this kind of stuff. 
Um, in exhaustive detail. You know, we didn't need it in, the, in, in 1974, but maybe we needed it in 2004 or whatever, whenever that came out. I mean, it's uh, there's been so many films that you just can't do a straight-faced Black Christmas remake these days without, you know, I think most audiences who are not familiar, especially those not familiar with the original film, wouldn't know how to take it, wouldn't know how, what to deal with it. Yeah. The film has its defenders, and I do like a couple things about the film, you know, having Andrea Martin come back as, as Mac, but uh, to me, the, the characters are, are not very well full-fledged. I don't, you know, I don't care about Billy's backstory personally. It just lacked the um, kind of claustrophobic, the cold, uh, claustrophobic atmosphere of that original. Absolutely. It felt very warm, and it was very g- gratuitous, but not very suspenseful, which is sort of the inverse of the original. It, it's a direction. I mean, <laughs> maybe not a great one, but... <laughs> but uh, they definitely they definitely picked the direction and went for it. So I read that there was a tendency by Canadian producers to make their films look less Canadian, so they'll they'd appeal to a US market. But Black Christmas looks and feels quite Canadian, you know, despite the um the American flag and John or the two American flags in John Saxon's office. Is that true that that was sort of what was happening? Oh, for sure. Um, there there's very very few Canadian films that even even out side of genre that were kind of straightforward or, or set, set in Canada. There was a few, and, and I think the feeling, the, the general feeling was that if you're going to make a Canadian film and tell a Canadian story, it, it might do okay in Canada, but wouldn't have any distribution outside there. And because all the theatrical venues were basically owned by American companies in Canada, getting a Canadian film to play in, you know, it's still an issue. To this day, getting a Canadian film to play in a multiplex or a you know any any theatrical setting was was pretty difficult. Canadians, we, we know how to make films, but we we couldn't get them distributed or seen by anyone, which was always a big problem. So so as a result, you'll see a lot of a lot of films that even all of Cronenberg's films, even though you know as a Canadian, I watch a David Cronenberg film and I recognize all the different locations where he's used. Ah, there's you know I oh I work near there, but you know he he's still very maybe one time he'll mention I, I think shivers does say something has something about montreal on it but you know for the most part they just tried to stay away they didn't want to specifically identify the film as canadian they just thought it would have a better shot at the box office and a better shot at u.s box office you, i saw that you hosted the um the 40th anniversary black christmas panel at fan expo 2014 i was wondering what that was like yes, that was an interesting um time we had a whole bunch of people in there including i think uh for the first time nick mancuso who's a local actor been in lots of Canadian films and he I think had only revealed a few years ago or a few years prior to that that he was one of the voices of Billy <laughs> um, and I think it was also John Saxon's last appearance and John is was, was he's getting on in years so I think when we first showed up it was kind of for a long time it was Art Hindle and uh, somebody else Lynn Griffin? It, was our, it was like I only had two people <laughs> in the session yep. for about the first half hour until everybody else kind of wandered in including John Saxon I think wandered in, in about half, 20 minutes or half an hour in <laughs> and he didn't remember a lot about the film but he was you know he was a genuinely charming guy and you could see him struggling to remember and you know but but had a smile on his face the whole time and that was a, that's the only time I've ever met met John Saxon so that was that was great to um, 
have a chance to talk with him. I think that was actually the second panel. I think I done. I think I did a panel about a decade before with a with a more limited cast, but that was much more interesting. You know, after Bob Clark passed away, to have people offering their remembrances of um, what it was like to work with him is always interesting. I was so devastated when I did the research to find out how Bob Clark died. It just seems so awful. Mm-hmm. It must have yeah. been, no, I, it must have been tough for Canadians, I imagine, because he by then I suppose he would have been a pretty significant figure. Yes and no. I mean, I, he he wasn't. He surely made a lot of films, and a lot of his films are beloved. But he was such a kind of one of those kind of uh, chameleon-like directors who could just kind of adapt whatever style. You know, people remembered his films, but not necessarily who he was. Right. So a lot of people still don't even know, but, you know, the guy, oh, the guy who did Black Christmas did a Christmas story. If, if certainly for the genre film, or like, you know, friends of mine and people in, in, in Canada who knew about his work were definitely um, um, shocked to hear about his death. I think I'd interviewed him maybe, I don't know, four months, five months before he died. Uh, at that time, he was talking about a um, children shouldn't play with dead things remake he was working on, which is I, I don't think it ever got past the script stage. But um, he was actually pretty excited about that film. Um, I would have loved to see him come back and start doing some more horror films. He said he definitely had an interest to do that um, at that stage in his life. That was right after the Black Christmas remake came out. But uh, yeah, unfortunately, we'll never we'll never see what he had in mind. Paul, I'm conscious that I've already taken up half hour of your time. I have a feeling I could speak to you for another three hours and we'd have a really awesome podcast. This being a Halloween episode, sure. I'm wondering if uh, you have a favorite horror film. Of all time? Mm-hmm. Oh, my God. Um, <laughs> Feel free to name several if you need to. I'll tell you my favorite uh, my favorite horror film to watch at Halloween, which is very seasonally, seasonally appropriate. My favorite film to watch uh, around Halloween is uh, Something Wicked This Way Comes. When I was a kid, uh, I was born in late 70s, uh, my parents would go to the video store and just rent some tapes for us and bring them home. And, and uh, back then, they had the, the Walt Disney releases, they all had this giant picture of Mickey Mouse on the top half, and you know, in his wizard outfit from uh, Fantasia. And then they would have a photo, and then it would just say, you know, the name of the film. And my parents, any anything Disney, they figured, ah, it's fine, right? So they would grab a bunch of Disney films, take it home. They'd say, here you go, watch this movie. We're going grocery shopping. So one day they rented something wicked this way comes, and an extremely scary film. I probably was like seven, eight, nine, and I think they came home, and I was like hiding behind a chair because <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, the end scene where they go, where they're on the merry-go-round and going back in time, and 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 uh, or going forward in time was extremely disturbing to me, and uh, it really was one of those times when you watch a film probably you know should have been should have been a little older and it really traumatized me but it always but because it traumatized me it always stayed in my memory <laughs> and uh, uh now i'm much older now i have a child who's you know nine so uh, this year is the year i'm planning to bust it out on him and uh and, and see uh, <laughs> see what the reaction is but beyond that it's just uh that film is to me is just so it's a perfect halloween film it's got those beautiful shots of those rolling hills with all the fall foliage on the trees um it's got the you know it just you can feel the chill in the air in that film and even though it isn't it isn't really a halloween film per se it just it just has that you know spooky atmosphere with the carnival and 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 the ice queen that they see at the fair and everything it's just um a, a film that has always really stuck with me and is something i try to pull out every halloween thank you so much my pleasure
Black Christmas pretty much starts out with a POV shot of him going to the front door, seeing that the bottom of the house yeah. is too crowded, and he goes around the side of the house, climbs up the trellis, gets into the attic. I tend to think that we don't watch those shots feeling like, oh, yeah, go killer, go. I watch those shots the same way that, and, and the reason they're frightening is this, is it's in the same way as when you're in a nightmare and you're doing something awful, mm. like you're stabbing or something. It goes against our own sense of right and wrong and our better judgment. I think its power to scare as a visual technique does so by disorienting our moral bearing. The idea of point of view is always to put somebody in somebody else's shoes. But if they're shoes that we don't necessarily want to be in... It makes you uncomfortable because you don't want to be in that position because you do feel like, you know, almost some sense of, I am doing this, I am performing this action. That's part of the reason that it's so effective in these films, part of the reason that you go back time and time and time again to it. It's also constrictive... The other thing about Bob Clark's film is that his camera is so restless. Mm-hmm. It's always moving. And Bob Clark talks a lot about how it was very difficult with his limited budget. Some of the shots were just really ambitious and really difficult, but they make Black Christmas very special. I think it's a construct of low-budget cinema is that if you keep your camera moving, it allows, obviously, less time to be spent on set dressings, uh, location, a whole bunch of things that add up so quickly. So it is a construct of low-budget cinema that you would keep your camera moving. But it also increases the visual interest. It does. He uses his camera to evoke suspense so well. That's actually one thing that is such a stark difference between Black Christmas and Halloween is Halloween has so many slow, meandering, steady shots that are downright beautiful, which is why you can see, I mean, Black Christmas, if you're looking at a poster, even a fan-made poster of Black Christmas, you're looking at a close-up. If you're looking at a fan-made poster of Halloween, you might be looking at a streetscape. And so that's what's so different. When When I see Halloween in my head, I see a wide shot. When I see Black Christmas in my head, I see a a tight shot. When you have a close-up, it's a little more uh, disorienting. The wide shot gives you perspective of where, who, why. Black Christmas, the whole, especially with the killer, it is very disorienting. You're not quite clear. Who is he? What does he want? Where are the girls? Why is this happening? It's all just sort of these very kind of striking imagery coming at you, Uh, whereas Halloween does feel a lot more composed. One thing that I think you have to talk about when you talk about Black Christmas is the house. It's such a perfect house for a horror film. I really love how the house kind of acts as this vertical scale barometer for human behaviour. So at the top of the house we have the killer turning the attic into a madhouse, storing corpses and manipulating the bodies, going into these rages. And at the bottom of the house in the basement we have Jess's final life or death confrontation with Billy slash Pete. And in the middle of the house, we have the natural, ordinary habits and behaviours of the sorority girls celebrating the holiday. So it's kind of great that the upper and lower sections of the house are where these extreme behaviours play out, whereas the ordinary middle-of-the-road behaviours are relegated to the mid-levels of the house. I know I'm probably being a little artsy-fartsy there, but it just struck me when I was watching it. This film is often cited as being the first horror film that used a point-of-view shot. Which it isn't. It is not. And most of the filmmakers on Black Christmas admit that it isn't. No, it's just I maybe the first... It's not even the first slasher film to use a point of view shot. I mean, Psycho did that in 1960 and Peeping Tom did it. I mean, Peeping Tom, you're seeing from the lens of the camera. Which the killer is looking through. Yeah. Lysolot Heimdall 
and others did a study for the Tokyo Metropolitan University, which they titled An Analysis of Camera Work in Horror Movies. They found that the POV shot in horror films was most often used to heighten what they labelled terror, a stage which they described as evoking anxiety and anticipation in the viewer by directing fear toward a situation and possible danger, which was most often marked by a slow, rhythmic pace that quickened as the stage proceeded. By contrast, the POV shot was used very sparingly in the stage they labelled repulsion, which was defined as containing moments showing physical pain, gore, unacceptable social behaviour or aversive stressful situations such as being trapped in the dark. Even during this terror stage where it was used more often though, point of view was only used about 13% of the time. So I found that really interesting. Yeah, that is interesting. So the other camera movements that are used uh, in this film, there's handheld shots, there's some long panning shots that suggest the possible location of the killer, um, and uh, one of my favourites, and I think it works really well in this, is the fisheye lenses to distort the point of view of the killer, which kind of just adds to this complete bizarreness of the character's psyche. Yeah, it's sort of the warped lens through which yeah. he sees the world. Everything becomes ugly and twisted. Nerdist called Reginald H. Morris's cinematography dizzying and suitable, suitably horrifying, and Morris would later shoot Bob Clark's two most famous films, Porky's and A Christmas Story. But not just visual design, I think sound design plays as much a part in the success of Black Christmas. The use of silence is especially unnerving. Obviously the vocalisations by Billy are jarring, they're deliberate, they're disgusting, they succeed in turning off the viewer, not only scaring us but shocking us. And likewise, the phone ringing to break up the silence brings with it a feeling of dread. We know the phone calls are a catalyst for these catastrophic events that are occurring. So, you know, it almost becomes like, what was it, the leitmotif from M. The phone, you know that that brings terror. And that sound like a piano is being smacked. Mm. The score is really good. I mean, it uses mostly ambient sounds, which again is... Uh, very prescient because so many horror films now rely almost exclusively on ambient sounds mm. and noises. Very rarely does a horror film have an actual score these days. Yeah. So a lot of the film was appropriately shot in shadows and it's understandably 44 years later this is a very grainy print but it's not too dark to watch and in fact the darkness of the film as it does with most horror serves to enhance the action. think of the ending of the film? Well, I read that the studio asked for this less ambiguous ending, which involved Jess waking up with Claire's boyfriend Chris in her room, at which point he says, Agnes, don't tell them what we did, a line that Billy obviously can be heard uttering during one of his phone calls earlier in the film, and then proceeds to kill her. I'm not sure if this would have been less ambiguous, because I think it would have just come out of the blue and added more confusion. So... With that stupid proposed ending aside, 
Let's talk about what actually happened. Obviously, it play, as it plays out, Jess believes her boyfriend Peter, who has been unhinged since early in the film, must be the killer. This is a bit of a U-turn from previous beliefs, as he was present during one of the phone calls earlier, and she therefore dismissed him as a suspect. But by the time that she's down in the attic, she's found out the calls are coming from inside the house, which means he could have been upstairs and then come straight down. That's true. When Peter comes into the basement during the film's climax, Jess bludgeons him to death before passing out. The police arrive, see his dead body on top of hers, put her to bed, sedate her and then leave. There's still an active investigation into the earlier rape as well as the body of a 13-year-old girl that was found, so it's easy enough to assume that the, the department is taxed in terms of resources and considers this case closed enough for now. That said, I think it is a little bit of a leap that A, they leave Jess in her bedroom in that very house which is an active crime scene after she's found in the basement, and B, never search the attic. I think they're far too accepting of Peter definitely being the killer, when in fact he could have been another victim. Although there is kind of a delicious cynicism to the idea that, you know, there's these, all these men, all these officers of the law, patting themselves on the back. This one's solved, yeah. we've worked it out, yeah. and of course we know that they haven't, and that, you know, um, the killer is still out there. Well, that's right. Before the credits roll, we're giving one last shot of Billy in the attic, along with the lifeless bodies of virginal Claire and house mother Mrs. McHenry, and he then proceeds to climb down from the attic, at which point the phone rings again. That's great. I love that the film ends with that, the ominous sound of the phone ringing as the credits roll. I think the implication is that they will search the house. I just don't think they're doing it right in that minute. I think the film ends before we can see the the house search. I think it's kind of important. What would they search the house for? Just more bodies? Well, there are still people missing. And they know right. that there's been a murderer. So it would And they know that the murderer was, in was the house. making calls from inside the house. I mean, one person. Yeah. Go up into the attic. <laughs> it's not too hard. You're right that it is absurd that they would leave her in a dark room, alone, in, in the, the house. And not to mention that even the killer was in this house. I mean, even this is still an active crime scene that needs to be investigated. You wouldn't leave someone there. You'd tape up the house and not let anybody in there. Yeah, that's right. The most powerful, frightening moment in the film is when the cop tells her that the calls are coming from inside the house and she makes that slow march up the stairs and she sees Barb. She grabs the penis beforehand though, Luke, remember? (laughs) Yeah, that's right. She grabs her penis (laughs) and then she sees Barb and Phyllis arranged in these really creepy things and then sees his eye through the door and then when he grabs her hair and then kind of chases her down to the attic. That whole part of the film is really, really creepy. We're assuming that Jess has stabbed Pete. I read somewhere that someone said, no, 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 I think the killer went down there knocked her unconscious and killed Pete. I don't really see how that would happen. I mean, the film almost is frustrating in how many questions it leaves unanswered. It's only frustrating when you watch the film like five or six times. I think initially you're just so gobsmacked by everything that's happened that you don't necessarily care because just the experience of watching the film is so haunting and and interesting and different. The ending, and particularly letting the audience know that Billy is still up in the attic. That gives the uh, audience more knowledge than the characters, which is pretty much how the whole film has played out to this point. We're always ahead of them. We know definitively at this point that Peter was not the killer, which I'm assuming we were not supposed to definitively know before this point. The film did try to create doubt about the identity of the killer by making Peter unhinged, particularly when he described Jess's acting like having an abortion was akin to having a wart removed. 
a line which Billy later repeated to Jess in a phone call. So eliminating Peter as a suspect here creates the ambiguity we're talking about since Jess's fate is now in question again. I should state, and probably on behalf of you as well, that at this point I've seen this film enough times now to know that Peter's not the killer. So I'm coming at this from a bit of a skewed perspective. A first-time viewer may be more convinced by his possible guilt during a screening than we are. But by the end of the film there's no question. I think ambiguous endings are used in slashes time and time again now. Uh, you know, Jason Voorhees opening his eyes at the end of a Friday the 13th to show that he's not really dead. Michael Myers disappearing after being shot by Loomis in the original Halloween. Freddy Krueger's hand smashing through the front door to drag Nancy Thompson's mother inside while the convertible that Nancy is in becomes a prison as its roof in the shape of Freddy's clawed glove traps her inside in the first Nightmare on Elm Street. Did Black Christmas intend to do a sequel? Was Billy supposed to return? Or is it just scarier knowing that he's still alive and that's the most unnerving way to force a young crowd to leave the cinema? Jess Gumbarge of Jarvis City did write an interesting article on the ending of this film, debating that our interpretation really comes down to a filmmaking technique known as diegetic versus non-diegetic sound. Diegetic sound is essentially any sound that is tied to an on-screen action, and the easiest example is an actor's mouth moving while dialogue comes out. Non-diegetic sound is any sound that occurs independent of the action on screen, and Robert Altman would be one of the premier filmmakers who used this style. He states that, If the killer's hysterics are part of the diegetic sound, the killer remains to be discovered, and it wasn't Peter, which is as we read the ending. But it could be argued that the sound is non-diegetic. In this case, Peter was indeed probably the main antagonist of the film, and the sound of hysteria isn't within the diegesis, ultimately using audio as a technique to unnerve the audience, emphasising the discomforting visuals on screen. But we don't just get the sound, we get the visual of the attic door closing. At the end of the film? Yeah. Yes, no, you're right. But did that occur in a linear fashion in this movie? Uh, Well, there's no question for me that it did. See, I, I... personally prefer a more literal reading of the film. Um, The film itself feels very authentic to me throughout. I'd rather therefore believe what I'm seeing as I have so far. This goes all the way back to the characters, the way that the characters care for and look out for one another, the way they take seriously the threat to themselves and don't merely, as in future slashes, dismiss the threat and go hunting for sex and drugs, and the way they deal rationally with extraordinary circumstances. And I think I also like to read it this way because I like the open-ended nature of an unfound killer. And the other thing is, if Pete isn't the killer, the film hasn't given us any other viable suspects. It eventually comes back to the idea of the killer as an unseen, unknowable stranger. If we look at the killer as a symbol of evil, or I hate the word evil, but as a symbol of the violent, disturbed person, of the idea of there being violence in the world, rather than as an individual, then the idea of him being perennial, of him never going away, never being able to be extinguished, is true. And it's it's a kind of a, it's a beautiful, freaky metaphor for the fact that no matter how many times we get rid of the evil, something grows back and is there. You know, that it's just, it's just an intrinsic part of being alive. And if, if this film had been made five years later, he probably would have come back and then probably would have come back again. I mean, there's no reason they couldn't do a sequel. I think... Um... I think the reason they didn't do a sequel is because the film was not successful enough to warrant it. It was successful in terms of it made its money back. And I think Bob Clark then went on to do some bigger films. So I think he would have had a choice to go back and do a sequel at some point. In fact, after they saw the remake, apparently Olivia Hussey and he were interested in doing a remake before his uh, horrible death. 
uh, and she would have played the house mother. Right, interesting. Yeah. And as it turned out, uh, Andrea Martin played the house mother in the remake. In the remake. This is after the remake. They were thinking of doing a sequel to the original, Bob Clark and Olivia Hussey, Um, but then um, Bob Clark was killed in a car crash by a drunk driver along with his son. Yeah, which is just terrible. Yeah. Seeing as how we're talking about the remake, did you watch it? No. It's directed by Glenn Morgan. It came out in 2006. Glenn Morgan had directed the remake of Willard, which was pretty interesting movie, I thought. Film, as you've said, goes heavily into Billy's backstory. And Morgan used real-life serial killer Edmund Kemper for inspiration. I didn't like it. I thought it was very plot-heavy. It was excessively gory, but not suspenseful or scary. So it kind of inverses Clark's philosophy (laughs) on the first film. Look, I suppose it's not terrible... Although I, I really, I, I can't think of anything I can say that's redeemable about it. I mean, I guess some of the gore effects are pretty good, although I just found them kind of stomach churning. I think in the first scene, pulls out one of the girl's eyes with his finger. And I mean, the backstory of Billy doesn't help. I didn't like it. By I think about halfway through, I was sort of only half watching it. Did you make it through the whole movie? I can't remember. <laughs> it was produced by Bob Clark. Yeah. Do you want to um, tell us a little bit about the release and reception? Sure. Well, obviously, as you've stated, this film had a really interesting release history. It was originally released in Canada on October 11th, 1974, under the name Black Christmas, as was intended by its filmmakers. Two months later, on December 20th, 1974, it was released in the United States as Silent Night, Evil Night. When Warner Brothers balked at the original title, I've heard that was because they didn't want to confuse it with a exploitation movie. Unfortunately, it didn't last long in the cinema thanks to lower-than-expected takings, although it did go travelling around the country in small sets of showings throughout 1975 and got a re-release around Halloween of that year in the major markets of Chicago, LA and New York. Through its theatrical run, it grossed just over $4 million, which made it rather profitable on just a $620,000 budget, but wouldn't be considered a triumph. As a comparison, the year's top-grossing horror film was an even lower-budget flick called The Texas Chainsaw Massacre, which would finish its two-year run of Saturday matinees and drive-in cinemas in 1976 with over $30 million. The film did have one more interesting bit of release history, which was surrounding the US network television premiere on NBC in 1978 under the horrendous name Stranger in the House. Unfortunately for Clark and his cast and crew, a prison escapee who would become a notorious serial killer, you've probably heard of Ted Bundy, went on a killing spree at the Chi Omega sorority house at Florida State University that was very reminiscent of the events depicted in the movie. This was just two weeks prior to its planned NBC debut, and the network premiere was shelved in several southern markets. Abe Wheeler, who reviewed the film for the New York Times in what can only be considered a blurb, said Black Christmas was a whodunit that begs the question of why it was made. It fared no better with Variety magazine, which called the film slow-paced and murky, the latter of which I can understand, but the former surely can't be true. Did you find it slow-paced? Slow-paced, no. The writer did say that only Marion Waldman as the house mother comes across with any life, but said the rest of the film was a bloody, senseless, kill-for-kicks feature that exploits unnecessary violence. Heaven forbid a horror film show some blood, and these writers must certainly have rued the later crop of slasher films derived from this comparative masterpiece. As it stands now, some semblance of re-evaluation has seen the film rise to a more respectable 69% fresh rating on Rotten Tomatoes, which is more than four times the rating of the terrible 2006 remake. Film School Rejects and Slash Film both ranked Black Christmas the second best Christmas-themed horror film ever made behind only... Have a guess, Luke. Silent Night, Deadly Night. Gremlins. (laughs) 
and among IMDb users, it ranks third behind Gremlins and Have a Think. Silent Night, Deadly Night. The Nightmare Before Christmas. <laughs> Horror News ranked at second behind 2011's Saint. And on Ranker, which tallies user votes to determine rankings, it's top of the heap ahead of... Silent Night, Deadly Night. Correct! <laughs> and the much more recent Krampus. Uh, Black Christmas also on Ranker ranks ninth among, among the scariest movies set in schools and fifth among the best urban legend movies. So that's quite interesting. And that's all I got. Should we do our Black Christmas quiz? Quiz time! How many questions you got? Well, we'll I've got five. Oh, I've got four. But we'll do three, and okay. then we've got backups if we need them. John Saxon plays Lieutenant Ken Fuller in Black Christmas. In which other horror film did Saxon portray a police officer? Do I know it? Have I seen it? Maybe. He's not in Nightmare on Elm Street, is he? Is that your answer? I don't know. To say he's not in it? <laughs> he's in a different film. <laughs> uh, yeah, I don't know. Have a guess. Nightmare on Elm Street. Fuck, you're right. Really? He is Lieutenant Donald Thompson, Nancy's father. I'm so great. He also reprised this role in A Nightmare on Elm Street 3, Dream Warriors, and played himself in Wes Craven's New Nightmare. Luke, he is such an essential part of Nightmare on Elm Street. Well, that's why I got it right. Well, you answered it by saying he's not in it. Okay. Which famous singer used to watch this movie every year on Christmas Eve? Elvis Presley. <laughs> That's right. Okay, I've got a similar question. Which Golden Globe nominated, Emmy Award winning and Grammy Award winning comedic actor has claimed to have watched Black Christmas at least 27 times? Steve Martin. Very good. We both did our homework this time. <laughs> Which actress was originally offered the role of Miss McHenry and turned it down? Betty Davis. <laughs> Gosh, full marks for all of us. We're going to need these bonus questions. Who was originally offered the role of Jess's boyfriend, Peter? Ugh. feel like I would know that, but no, I can't remember. No guess? No. Malcolm McDowell. Oh, God, I wouldn't have got that. Who was coming off of Stanley Kubrick's A Clockwork Orange and would later appear as Dr. Loomis, previously made famous by Donald Pleasance in Rob Zombie's remake of John Carpenter's Halloween. I know, I love him. He's so good. At the time, he shared some distinct physical sim similarities with Kia Dullia, who, who eventually got the role. And Dullia also played in Kubrick's pre-clockwork film, 2001 A Space Odyssey. So is this my third question for you? Yes. So if you get this, you win. Oh, yeah. Which filmmaker has a personal print of the film in his collection and calls it one of his favourite movies? Oh, this is tough. I don't know this. Um, which filmmaker? Ah, oh, look, I'd say, like, Quentin Tarantino. That's it! Is it? <laughs> <laughs> he sounds like the kind of douche that would own a personal print of a film like this. I know. Okay, so you won the quiz. I did. Do you want to ask me bonus questions? I'll ask you this question, even though I won the quiz, okay? Okay. Because I haven't won one for a while. What's the nickname the girls give to Billy? The Mona. Very good. <laughs> <laughs> and um, why did Olivia Hussey accept the lead role in the film? She was told to by her spirit guide or medium or something like that. Yeah, and apparently that psychic also told her that she would marry Paul McCartney and Mugger Kidder gave her a lot of shit about that. <laughs> Alright, so uh, rating out of five? Uh, four and a half. Hmm, me too. Pretty good. So that's all we have this month for Celluloid Junkies. Next month we are going to be looking at Jonathan Glazer's 2000 crime drama, Sexy Beast. Please rate, review, subscribe, and we'll be humbly yours now and forever. Until we meet again, remember these sage words of wisdom. You can't rape a townie. <laughs> <laughs>